Hello, everybody. My name is Jason West, and this is PodClass. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cal State Long Beach College of Education and Educational Leadership Department. Did you know that the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach is home to not one, not two, but three, count them, one, two, three advanced degree programs. One such program is the Educational Leadership Doctorate Program, a three-year program designed for working professionals in the PK-12 and higher education levels who want to further promote social justice in urban educational settings. What's particularly unique about the program is that higher ed and PK-12 students take many of their courses together, cue the We Are Family song, so that they can learn how to address problems across the educational spectrum. The program prides itself on providing high levels of support and practical knowledge so that students graduate on time and make a difference in their jobs. Interested in applying? The application window is currently open and closes on February 12th, 2021. Now, look, I know what you're thinking. Great idea, Jason. I'm 100% going to do this. I'm just going to put it on my to-do list. I've got a couple things i got to do first. Then I'm going to get to it. I promise. It, it, it's on there. It's just like maybe not like an immediate thing, but it's definitely going to be on the back burner. I'm 100% going to do it. It's just going to, you know, maybe maybe next week I'll, I'll visit it. Look, I, I get it. Well, you might be busy. But please, trust me when I tell you that in a pandemic, time means nothing. You're going to blink and, oh my gosh, it's already February 11th and you haven't even looked at the application. As soon as this podcast is over, go to the Cal State Long Beach website, open up that application, review it, start working on it now. Get those apps in. Information sessions are held through the fall semester and dates can be found at csulb.edu forward slash edld. Go Beach, go lead. Today's tea is provided by Snapdragon and Thistle. Do you know where your teas come from? I do. I know that my teas come from Snapdragon and Thistle. And fortunately for me, Snapdragon and Thistle knows where they get their tea. See, Snapdragon and Thistle prides themselves on sourcing their teas ethically. They've eliminated those pesky middlemen. Damn you, middlemen! After the leaves are picked, your leaves make only two stops before landing at your front door. It takes me more than two stops just to get out of bed. Like, legit. I wake up, I gotta reach for that alarm clock, boom, turn it off. I take the blanket off, I immediately regret it, put the blanket back on, count for five seconds and hope that maybe as soon as I take that blanket off it won't be as cold. No such luck. I take the blanket off, I check my phone, look if I have any emails, see if the world is on fire still. Look at that. Look at all those steps it took, and I haven't even stepped one foot out of bed. Snapdragon and Thistle takes only two steps from picking the tea to getting to your door. Snapdragon and Thistle provides the best prices for premium, ethically grown teas, so both your taste buds and your conscience can enjoy your cup of tea. Snapdragon and Thistle is now offering PodClass listeners a 10% discount on their next order. What? You heard that correctly. I have my own promo code, y'all. All you have to do is go over to snapdragonandthistle.com. That's S-N-A-P-D-R-A-G-O-N-A-N-D-T-H-I-S-T-L-E.com. That's right, I spelled that whole thing for you. And enter the promo code MrWestT20. That's M-R-W-E-S-T-T-E-A-2-0. 
2-0. Can you believe it? I have my own promo code. Man! Okay, well, I take a moment to bask in the glory of having my own promo code. Why don't we go ahead and get the show started? Cue the music. with Dr. Anna Ortiz and Dr. Stephen Glass. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you. Thank it's you. good to be here. So a quick rundown of your CVs. Dr. Ortiz uh, currently serves on the Faculty of Student Development in Higher Education Program. Uh, it also says here that you led the Educational Doctorate Program for 10 years and that you were instrumental in the creation of the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, Dr. Glass, here it says you are a former principal, district administrator, and you are currently the, distinct, the distinguished faculty in residence for the Cal State Long Beach Educational Leadership Program, a program that you actually graduated from, uh, Mazels. Uh, it also says here, this is weird. Uh, you have the distinct honor of being the only person to be a guest on both my old podcast and this oh. new one. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I was hoping for that distinction. Dr. Glass, Dr. Ortiz, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. Uh, I hope you are both comfortable. You good? Dr. Yes. Ortiz, Dr. Yes. Glass, you got your cup yes. of tea. You ready yeah. to go? Absolutely. Excellent. Ready. Excellent. Because before we get into today's show, I want to start with a quick segment we're calling intersectionality. Today we are drinking oolong tea, but not just any oolong tea, no sorry. We are drinking oolong cucumber lime tea. I know, I know. It, it sounds like a lot of things at once, but, but trust, just let's take a sip. All right, this oolong is obviously very complex due to the variety of layered flavors. It has from the first sip, it's got that classic oolong kind of nuttiness that kind of makes you think like you've walked into a house that someone's baking something delicious. Uh, but then the subtlety of the cucumber comes in and then it followed by the nice little tartness of the lime. Complementing the flavor combination, the lime offers this really sweet citrus aftertaste, which coincidentally is how I was described in my high school yearbook, uh, having a sweet citrus aftertaste. Seriously though, Having a cup of this tea from start to finish is literally a flavor journey. It is complex for sure. Enjoy. So you're probably wondering why we're drinking this super complex version of oolong tea today, right? Like how does oolong cucumber lime tea intersect with education and personal identity? So you both know something about putting together a program where Connecting a rich diversity of cultures is not only appreciated, but required. Dr. Ortiz, since you were so involved in creating this program at Cal State Long Beach, what were some of the most crucial steps you took to build something that was not only culturally inclusive, where each culture has a voice in the program, but not lost in the mix? When you build an academic program, there's so many different elements to it. And it, 
it's complex and you know kind of like your tea and it um changes over time i i think like um, tea would as well um but I think you, you need to start with some basic values. And I, and I think that we started at the beginning with um, values around social justice and knowing that we were preparing leaders to work and lead and change in the LA basin. And we couldn't do that in an acultural way. Um, in a, in a, where we aren't considering equity issues because the reality of public education in the LA basin is that it is incredibly diverse, um, ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, funding, all of those things. And so I think we had a lot of different, I'm going to say milestones in coming to where the program is now it wasn't always um easy i think we i as the leader of the program i had to have difficult conversations with people at different times um maybe change of personnel at different times um in order to really live the social justice mission that we wrote down on paper uh, because that so that meant we had to do curriculum revision we did that twice under my 10 years um, in the position to bring more equity um, content into the curriculum um, but the students were always there from like the very first um, cohort um, was incredibly diverse. And I was really proud of that cohort. I worked super closely with them. And many of them have become um, significant leaders and not just in education, but I think that will in the community and, and, and I know one of them we'll see at the state or national level at some point. Yeah, the mayor. <laughs> the mayor. Every, every time I turn on t the TV or go online, I see our mayor is, you know, on some there. sort of nationally televised thing. I'm like, oh, that guy's going places. And I've, I've heard him at, I've heard him at different events and maybe he says it because I'm there. Um, but he talks about things that he learned in the doctoral program and, and how it informs the work that he does. And I know that that's true for all of our students. Um, and so I'll stop there. How's that? <laughs> Dr. Glass, you have the unique point of view that you were actually part of the program and now you're running it, right? Like you, you are every Drake song in <laughs> coming to life. <laughs> Started from the bottom, now you're here. What? <laughs> what is the bottom? <laughs> The students are at the top. The students are at the top, right. Fair enough, fair enough. Right. I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go workshop that metaphor. Dr. Glass, what has changed since you were in the program to where you are now in terms of culturally inclusive, cultural inclusive, inclusivity, easy for me to say, or, um, you know, just variety, you know, diversity within the program? Mm -hmm. Well, I, first, I want to counter with another Drake lyric or title which would be sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry. So mm. that would be more indicative of what's happened yeah, over the see, course of time. You should have uh, known. You come at the king, you best not miss. My fault. <laughs> you, best, you best not. You best not. <laughs> so from, from, from my perspective, with respect to uh, being in the program and then 
post program, I think a lot of things have stayed the same. Um, as a person that's working within uh, EDLD, EDD program right now, um, I see a lot of students uh, in my class, especially who are diverse. And I'm saying from the point of view of not only their, um, their focus, but also what they want out of the program. Uh, my experience in the program was very similar and I didn't know what to expect. I just knew I wanted to go into the program, but the people I met and getting to know them, they came from all different walks of life and they made certain decisions professionally and academically about being at Long Beach State, which I thought was very important, not only to them, but for me to hear about why they decided to come in. And I was, um, as I was sharing with you earlier, Jason, it was the conversation about social justice resonates with me, but at the same time, there were people who didn't have that focus, there were a few. But at the same time, there were people that came in, they were like, wow, I'm getting it. And so they developed the focus. And so being in the EDD program now and seeing some of the students and talking with some of them, I see that that same kind of maturation or that transition is taking place. So they're not coming in just to get the degree. Right, they're they're kind of, that's a that's also a part of it, of course, but they're also trying to um, improve their practice and really learn more about this thing called social justice and how they actually can apply it. And I think you know through this pandemic, through um, the different um, losses that we've had since May, um, in particular, you know George Floyd just really brought a lot of attention to it, and I think that was on the cusp of this particular cohort, not only being accepted and starting the, the program, but also having to live through this over the course of the past, you know, five months, six months. So I think that they have the distinct advantage, if you will, of really putting these things into practice sooner than I did um, as a, as a uh, administrator, because uh, I was still in the place, and maybe America was too, of trying to convince people that social justice was a thing you know, in, in PK-12. Whereas these students now in the EDD program are like, we know this is a thing and we need to figure out how to actually put it in place and, and make it work. So there, there, there's the only difference, but I think that the selection that's made is also awesome. I think the, the, the selection committees, if you will, do a great job in finding those diamonds in the rough to bring in um, and to make sure that they are supported and they're taken care of as they go through. So. I'm, I'm very happy about being involved in the program twice. To, to that point, Dr. Ortiz, Dr. Glass just mentioned social justice and how, you know, it, it, it's kind of a relatively new term, especially within education. And I guess my question to you is, being that you have been involved with this program and many other educational leadership programs before that, is this kind of one of those, you know, a rose by any other name things? that it's always kind of been a part of this or is it truly something that is like a new part of education? And if so, how does that impact the trajectory of where we're going in education? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, the old senior person here. So <laughs> I, I see an evolution of terms and emphases. And in my view, I even think social justice is dated now. Mm. Um, and so I don't think of it as a new term. I, I think of it as, as uh, one that we need to, we need to start using um, some more specific language. 
And, um, you know, and in my career in higher education, which is, you know, been, I don't need 30, more than 30 years in higher education, you know, we started with cultural awareness and then we went to diversity and diversity had a long history. We, people still use that word. It makes my ears hurt when I hear diversity. <laughs> and um, so social justice was kind of a relief to the diversity word. But I, I think now, especially given um, all of the police brutality toward um, especially Black Americans, but it's also an issue in the Latino community as well, that we really need to move from social justice to racial justice and call it what it is. So even get more in the face, um, social justice kind of put it more in the face, but still gives us a little wiggle room, right? Social justice, it could mean this, it could mean that. Well, yeah, I've noticed um, that, you know, all the terms that you mentioned, right? You know, diversity, social justice, all these terms have a very interesting way of not pointing the finger at a specific group and not laying blame. And it's, it's almost this, um, it's, it's almost like a, a master's level in passive language instead of just saying what it is, right? It, it allows us to be more generic about our, um, our goals, more generic about our um, actions and more generic about our leadership. And it, it doesn't acknowledge the, the serious problems that we have in society and education that are all about race. Because right. it's easier to say, a, yeah. it's easier to say we need to have more diversity in this program. It's a lot harder to say, what are we doing that's excluding, you know, marginalized people? Right. Yeah. Why don't they want to come here or something like that? You know, you can, you, you can take Stephen and I and put a drop us anywhere and, um, we will be using, we will have to um, make clear that we have doctorates. we we'll make clear that we are university professors um, because, uh, you know, it might be, you know, maybe they could tell by our cars, we're in a different socioeconomic bracket. But, but like I said, you just drop us anywhere. Um, we're gonna experience much of the same thing that members of our community experience every day who don't have the buffer of you know a doctorate or a buffer of a professorship or working in a university and so that's all about race and and that's that's not about class it's about race and when we don't use terms like racial equity and racial justice then it allows us to be cloudy and, and then we don't get the work done i didn't realize when i was gonna that when I finish this program I not just I don't just get like a special robe and a degree but I get like that doctoral whip I didn't realize that's great uh I'm ready to <laughs> go in my back pocket yeah ready to go uh Dr. Glass for someone like yourself who has gone through the program and like I said now that you are running it you have the vantage point of being able to see it from the perspective of somebody who's just trying to go through it and know how to recruit people, but also what it takes to manage it and keep it afloat. What is something that you would say 
to someone like, doc, like Dr. Ortiz mentioned, someone who is already in a marginalized group, uh, what do you say to them about getting through the program? Because again, it, it, it's not like they can just sort of naturally walk around having this degree. They are constantly trying to prove themselves. What, what good will it do for them in their careers? I guess those are two different questions. So, well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to go forward. I think with uh, what Dr. Ortiz was mentioning, uh, with respect to, she didn't say it this way. I'm kind of tweaking it a little bit. The intentionality of the terminology and the the idea that there's been this evolution of the terms there has to be an evolution in the way that particularly I recruit for the program. And so there has to be an intentionality with that. So what I would like to do is have a program where I'm in, really inspiring people to come in. They already have the willingness. They want to come in and do the work. And we're going to define what the work is with respect to racial justice and, you know, equity and, and having just a very, very detailed, very understandable, understandable kind of uh, journey that we're gonna to walk together so that they go back to these places, similar to missionaries, and they really kind of work within that system to influence others, to influence students, teachers, and the like. Um, getting the degree at, in this particular time and space isn't enough. You know, you have to really do work after you're done with the degree through the ed leadership department. Um, going, you know, and, and people have done that. But then there's also people who haven't taken that um, call and really done what they need to do or they are able to do to uh, really spread their wings and, and get some people to see, oh, this is what you get when you go to that particular college or university. Um, I want to see that. Well, I, I attended Morehouse College as an undergrad. And so they would say things like, you can always tell a Morehouse man, you just can't tell him much type of thing. When it was always people would laugh and that'd be funny. That. <laughs> you, you heard that before? I've heard it. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And then it's it's low-key true because when people see your 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 college on a transcript or on a resume, they have a certain expectation. When I was at Compton High School as a as the principal, I would say to the students and the staff, I want people to look at our students' transcripts and say, Oh, they went to Compton. Okay. I know that they're sound in this area. I know that they're going to be, you know, hard workers are going to be critical thinkers, et cetera, because we're going to build that. And that's where we are here. We're just trying to add to this and we're trying to open up our doors to a variety of people who are going to go back and do the work, whether it's, you know, at a charter school, at a large uh, uh, K-12 district, a community college, a university, wherever it is, we want them to go back and do this work. And so the, the degree isn't enough. It has to be the work that's going to be accompanying it as well. So I have a kind of complicated multi-layered question. So I guess I'll start with the bottom layer. We all know that there is a large distance between the amount of, uh, white educated leaders within education and any other uh, and any other marginalized subgroup. And it comes from, you know, where people 
go, you know, like you said, where they go to college and what they major in uh, and how they get to where they're going. So I guess my first question is, how do you think we as educators can help create more equity-minded students? I think that, I I mean, I I like that Stephen said in his experience, there were students in his cohort or around his cohort, um, you know, around his time of being in the program who did it. There were people who maybe who didn't get it um, initially. Maybe they were resistant or they didn't understand. But over time in the program, they began to get it. And um, so I think that we do that through a number of different mechanisms. You know, some is the curriculum and the content. Uh, We integrated some intergroup dialogue techniques um, a few years ago in the program and it's that strengthening in the program. It gets, we're getting better at it every year. Um, And I think we're getting better. um, We have uh, more faculty who are getting better at it. And so I think that is showing up more in classes. Um, I think students push each other too. And, and so it's not just faculty, uh, but, it's, but it's also students. Um, and they might do it with our coaching. I've been the pro-sem instructor for my cohort um, for five or six classes now, it seems like forever. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> You know, I know that they do some on the side because with their classmates, because they consult with me and they say, we see this happening. What do you think we should do? And I strategize with them one-on-one about how to work with cohort mates who may be resistant. Um, but I also know that through content and, and activities in class, we make progress. So I think it's, it's kind of every, every, everything. Um, and, but a lot of it is, you know, we're not shy about, you know, Stephen's recruiting now, but, and I'm not in leadership anymore, but we're not shy about saying you're going to have, you're, if you come to Long Beach, we're going to talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if you're, if that's uncomfortable for you, then go somewhere else. <laughs> right. Right. So, do- we, may do- get, we may get choir members, right? Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Dr. Ortiz is playing uh, 4D chess. She already was answering my second level of question, which was really about like, how do we get more equity-minded school leaders? Mm -hmm. But what I'd also like to know, uh, and Dr. Glass, maybe you can speak to this, how do we create more equity-minded students, meaning like the PK to 12 students? Uh, The kids. How do do we get more Mm equity-minded kids? Because those kids are eventually going to grow up and maybe think, hey, if they are more equity-minded, maybe you know, education or policy or some other aspects of this world of ours uh, that needs to be more equitable, which I can't think of a single area that doesn't need to be more equitable. How, how do we create that in our schools? Well, it, it has to be a part of the landscape, right? I mean, so the environment that K-12 is in, um, it, it's, we're late. I mean, literally we are late in terminology and implementation of uh, particular programs or, or just ways of thinking. Um, I mean, literally using the term diversity is like hot. I mean, it's, it's hard to say social justice in K-12. Mm. People just aren't feeling that at this moment. Um, 
So, I'm, and I'm talking about from the highest levels. I'm not talking about necessarily at the school site. You may have some people who are saying it and there may be a group, a club or an organization that forwards that thinking. But when it comes to something that's systemic or something that is so entrenched in the, in the uh, schools, plural, um, I don't see that. And so LAUSD bringing in an ethnic studies course doesn't answer that call. Right. I mean, it's, it's a step in a direction and I, I applaud it, but it doesn't answer the call of how to make students equity minded. Uh, the teach, some of the teachers uh, needs to be developed in order to really have that a part of their lesson planning and a part of their unit planning and a part of their, you know, their grade level uh, meetings so that everyone's on the same page with this development. Uh, so, and that's part of the work. So again, when, when it comes to this, and making sure that we start to develop these students. I'm gonna say this, my personal observation about what took place in May was there were a lot of kids, a lot of white kids out marching because they saw the video, George Floyd, and they said to themselves, well, what's really going on? I mean, when people say this, I kind of hear my parents talking about it. I kind of hear my grandpa talking about it. But then when I see it myself, I'm like, okay, people are lying to me. Things aren't just fair. And I don't understand why this is. So they took a couple of steps forward and they started to make some kind of statement with respect to them. You know, I mean, God bless them. They're walking around in certain areas, LA, Long Beach, you know, orange. They were walking in the circle. They were doing things that I did not expect. And as a black man and a resident of orange, need I remind you orange is in Orange County. I get a call from a buddy of mine saying that there's a bunch of kids walking around the circle. I said, what are they doing? What are they walking around for? <laughs> They're protesting George Floyd. I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And this did not, this isn't anything, assuming that these students go to school in the district. This is in no way something that's being taught. This is in no way something that's being, uh, that's been a focus of the district. This was something that these students did independently and interdependently really, because they threw this thing together probably in two or three days and they, they marched multiple days in, uh, in the circle and all the way up down the large thoroughfare called uh, Chapman and stopped traffic. And I was impressed by that. And that, I mean, so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the institutions catching up. So to, um, to that point, cause you're right. It, it seems like from Parkland mm -hmm. in 2017, uh, yeah all the way to the civil unrest that was happening this past summer, it, it does absolutely seem that the kids were taking the lead. They were teaching us terms and strategies and things like that. So what would it take from, you know, I'll ask Dr. Glass from the PK 12 level, because I know you have a lot of experience there. And then Dr. Ortiz from the higher ed level, what's it going to take for these institutions to catch up? Is it just about waiting until these young leaders become old enough to take over? Or is there a way that we can um, grab the wheel and, and drive this thing too? So the, the wonderful thing is, un unfortunately, these, these deaths, these shootings, these, you know, this, you know, continued racial injustice that's taking place. And the fact that folks like you, folks like, you know, others that are in these programs at Long Beach State are here and they know what our program is about. And they know what our, fo our foci happens to be. 
And that's what it actually takes. You guys going back to your districts and really advocating for this. I mean, it, that has to be what happens when I, when I see people and I've seen many people go from their doctoral programs and other institutions go back to their districts and their focus, God bless them. Their focus is making sure the EDD is spelled correctly on their nameplate. Mm-hmm. So th- there's nothing that's happening to really forward a cause. Now, again, to be fair, all this really just came to the forefront, right? So I don't know what they've done in the past six months. Maybe that those behaviors have changed. But I know in the time that I've been in the uh, PK-12 environment, a doctorate meant pay scale. The doctorate meant I'm going to go for a uh, administrative position. A doctor didn't mean um, social change. It didn't mean a focus on students having more equitable uh, outcomes as they select their classes, as they walk through these spaces as an LGBTQ individual. It didn't mean that. It literally meant this was for me. And so we're trying to change that perspective and it, it literally may have to be one student at a time, and I'm okay with that. But it, it just has to happen that way, because I don't think there's a way to do it by legislation, <laughs> you know, or, or by, you know, mandate. It has to be something that's organic, and people have to really change their heart in order to really see these things happening and really go forward uh, from there. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I misspoke, I believe. I, I believe... Parkland happened in February of 2018, but yeah, it was, it was a like semantic thing. But it's one of those things where I know that I'll be like, "Oh, someone's going to be like, oh, you wrong year." It's just less clear. Is it Valentine's Day? Clear that up. Yeah, Valentine's Day or right around it. Yeah. Yep. It's pandemic time. No one knows what day it is. You know, fair enough. Thank you, Doctor Ortiz. <laughs> I, mean, I just need you. I need you in my corner for all, all things. So, Doctor Ortiz, what can uh, higher ed do to try to catch up? Um, with a focus on the students. Um, I think that one of the, th- you know, my, my original discipline or subdiscipline is student development and specifically ethnic identity development. And in um, the study of, eth- of ethnic identity, um, there are a number of positive outcomes associated with positive ethnic identity. Um, there are academic outcomes, there are social outcomes, there's confidence, self-esteem, so psychological outcomes. Um, many studies have shown direct connection to higher GPAs and academic achievement. So I'm, I'm excited at, from what, and, and my own study that I did, you know, at the turn of the last century showed that students who engaged in ethnic studies courses had a real understanding of what went wrong in their education. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I remember in in an interview with an African-American woman um, at a CSU and she was uh, a junior, I, I wanna say, and she said, you know, I took, I took African-American studies here. And if I had known all of that in high school, mm. if, I, if I had had the correct history and she called it the correct history, she mm-hmm. said, I would have done better. She said, I would have gone to a really good school. 
like Howard or something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so she, in retrospect, could see the direct connection between that course, how she felt about herself and the, and the confidence and the opportunities, and then what difference that would make for her future. So I'm excited that Long Beach Uni or LA Unified and Long Beach has had it um, electively, um, ethnic studies excited. courses at the yeah. high school level. And with the new legislation at the CSU, then, then that has an opportunity to have a similar effect here. Um, I do a lot of talks and um, trainings with academic advisors at the university level. And it's something I always tell them that if you have a student who's having academic difficulty and, you know, don't send, you know, don't send them to the study skills center. Don't harp on where's your time management and why don't you learn how to read better? You know, recommend that next semester they take an ethnic studies course, whichever, mm. you know, whichever, um, group they identify with because that's going to do more for them because so much of being in education when you are from a marginalized population is that you know it's not for you it wasn't set up for you it doesn't benefit you they're finding ways to, to gatekeep you and so if through those courses you have the opportunity to learn the correct history <laughs> And, and, and that's very empowering. And so what mm -hmm. I would do is, you know, definitely, I'm, I'm thrilled about the ethnic studies requirements. Um, and I think a part of those is not just the history, but the current socioeconomic context, uh, the political context that groups find themselves in, but also how to organize and build coalitions. Mm -hmm. um, I spend a lot of time with, um, I mean, not a lot, like I, more than I used to when I was department chair and just stuck in the AS um, building. <laughs> but I've been working with the Latinx student leaders on campus and, you know, teaching them and coaching them. How, when you go into the president, this is what you say. Um, this mm. is how you ask for things. Um, this is how you put a resolution together. And, and I think if we can build those, um, you know, community organization skills with students, then we're going to see more of that bottom up, you know, more of students in the street and more students pressuring institutions to change. Because I think in higher education, it, it's going to take the students to do that mm -hmm. because there's more of them <laughs> than there are of us. Um, and they can do, say a lot of things that staff and administrators um, can't say, and even things that faculty can't say. And they have mm -hmm. they have avenues that we don't have. So, in higher mm -hmm. education, I think students are critical for a movement. One of the issues that I think education has is that it is constantly trying to do everything in the dark. It. Hmm there is not like a consistent, uh, there's not, there's not a consistent nature across education. If you are a doctor and you work in a hospital in San Francisco, and then you move to a hospital in Jacksonville, the terms are the same, right? Mm -hmm. This is that a spleen is this a wound is that like, there's, there's no gray area. There's no misunderstanding uh, of what is what everything, no matter where you go, it's going to be the same. Yet, you know, equity and equality, these terms are ubiquitous in education, 
but they mean different things to different people in different areas, right? Well, what needs to be done in order to, well, first, first, let me ask, what are your definitions of equity and equality? What are the differences between those two? And what needs to be done in order to create a more uniform definition of these terms in education? Dr. Ortiz was just in the equity meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, there are some very well-meaning, um, both white people and people of color, who believe in equality mm. and who make educational decisions based on equality every day. Um, I see it every day. Mm. And so that means that we have to pay everyone the same right? We all have to have, mm -hmm. I can't bring you in at $10,000 above this person, even though I'm going to rely on you to work with students of color, to bring in students of color into programs, to help diversify the curriculum, to do what we call kind of this ethnic taxation in, mm. in service. But, but, I'm, I, I'm, but, I, but I can't, we have to be equal. Um, I believe in equality, so I can't I can't bring you in at more money. I, I heard I heard administrators say this the other day, where one of the reasons why we don't have more administrators of color on campus is because um, in searches, when it got down to the offers, we just couldn't pay them the money. Mm. And I'm kind of like, you could pay them the money mm. in a university budget: twenty thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars. Doesn't it's not going to break the bank, right? I feel like I've paid that in parking tickets alone. Alone, right? <laughs> but what's really behind that is I can't bring Steven in at $120,000 and pay the person in the office next to him $80,000 because that's not equal. And so when we're making decisions based on equality, that's one of the, that's one of the outcomes of it. Um, but Even I'm going to give Stephen, well, the jobs are never equal. Mm. Um, I, I currently, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I get, well, I'm well compensated at the university. So I, you got that doctoral I, car. <laughs> I, I found that I found my ways <laughs> to get my money, <laughs> There you go. but, but I hold right now, I, I am chair of the president's um, co-chair, faculty chair of the President's Commission on Equity and Change. So a high-level um, commission that is very visible right now. I am uh, the faculty equity advocate, which is another um, position within academic affairs for the College of Education. I am the chair of the Latinx um, Faculty and Staff Association, the faculty chair of that association. And I'm part of the leadership group for the chairs learning community on retaining new faculty. Mm. <laughs> so four things. Wow. And all four, you know, I'm getting compensated for my time for some of them, but some of them are volunteer. And so that means that my job isn't equal to, you know, another full professor in my department. Because some of those things are fundamentally rooted in who you are as a who person. I am. And, mm. and the university relies on my service. Mm. And so 
it's not the same job as we have two full professors in the department. It's not the same job. So what do we need to do to create a more uniform definition of these terms in our industry? Well, I think we need to understand what equity is. I mean, equity Mm -hmm. is about, it's about many different things, but it it is about, um, uh, part of it is about making sure that everyone has an equitable chance to succeed. And so that means that we clear barriers rather than give people, you know, send them to the study center and make them do, um, you know, summer bridge or, uh, you know, all these things that we do for student support. It's like, well, what's the barrier? So for example, in higher ed, students come in underprepared for math and English, let's say, Mm -hmm. but let's choose math. And let's get beyond that higher ed thinks K-12 didn't do a good job and that's why they came unprepared. <laughs> so we'll get beyond that. So um, so they're here and they're at the university. And so the university creates all these ways, you know, now we've outlawed remedial classes. It's literally against the law to offer remedial mm-hmm. math and English at community colleges and at the universities. So, but now we have supplemental instruction and there's all these other things that we do to help students pass college level math. But who teaches college level math? Hmm. You guys have a guess who teaches, who who teaches those um, (coughs) entry math courses? Lectures, part-time lectures teach those courses. (laughs) So we take our most experienced faculty Hmm. And our, our tenure track faculty, they don't teach, mm. they don't teach freshman courses. Same thing happens at but, the high school level. <laughs> and mm. so now we've hired, we've, we've hired part-time instructors who to make a living might be teaching up to eight sections at multiple campuses. So mm. they're, mm-hmm. they're at Long Beach State, they're at Long Beach City, they're driving over to the Dominguez Hills, <laughs> you know. Yeah. To to make a living and and it you, how can you how can you teach well and give students attention when you don't have an office when you don't when you you're you don't really have office hours because you have to run everywhere and so and those are the the student those are the instructors we have who teach students who need the best instruction it's yeah. it has nothing to do with the quality of that instruction it has to do with the structure around you know that it's just impossible, you know, to make a living in LA and be a, a lecturer without being mm. at multiple campuses, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's an example of equity. That's an equity issue, um, and and the institution has over time intentionally underpaid the people who we need the we need the most to teach the students um, that in those gatekeeper courses because if they don't pass those courses, guess what? you don't get to be a nursing major (laughs) and you don't get to stay in your STEM. And, 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 and that's not even considering the psychological effect of failure. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't get to live my dream. You know, I don't get to, to do what my parents really wanted. You know, it's our dream for me to be a doctor and, you know, I can't get out of these hundred level courses to get to the 200 level courses. 
So that's a that's a real equity issue. And the administrators will talk about it. And even the full professors and the, you know, the the tenure track professors will talk about, well, this is a problem, but no one's gonna say, hey, I'm gonna go in and teach those students. Mm. You know, <laughs> be mm-hmm. like, I'm not teaching freshmen. I'm not going into that class of 200. Dr. Glassman, so. what are you saying? Well, it's, you alluded to it in, in the, uh, using the same similar example, I guess. Um, teachers that are probably most experienced or teachers that have the most, um, you know, ability to teach the students that are struggling or have the most need, um, in a lot of cases, choose not to. They will um, go to their administrators and say, you know, they put the time in. They shouldn't have to teach those kids. I want to teach, you know, AP or the honors or something of that nature. And, you know, I've heard it forever that it's, yeah, it's so a part of that, you know, that, that environment that it's just, you just hear it all the time and you have to cajole people. Paid your dues, make, yeah. 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 I mean, that's what you hear. And, um, you know, I learned real early on that, you know, your best teachers should teach your students that have the most need. Mm-hmm. And that is an example of equity within the K-12 environment, but very rarely does that happen. And when it does, um, I mean, definitely go play the lottery that day because that's just rare. Um, so I, I would love to see that. I would love to see and hearing it from Anna right now about what happens at the university level. I mean, it, it, it makes sense that that still happens in both locations, but it still hurts to hear that that happens. And um, there are tons of kids that uh, students that are, are struggling and need that additional help. And yeah, for us, we do for us, PK 12, we do a lot of remedial courses. And uh, when it comes to fifth, sixth grade going into seventh grade, you see the divide, you see the students that are not on college track. And you know, I go into this all the time with with my wife and her friends, you know, about the idea that in, in elementary school, everybody's going to college. Everybody's going to college. You've got college day, you got banners all over the place. When you get to middle school, those kids are going to college because they're in those classes and these kids, eh, we'll see. So behaviors change and the whole prospect of what you're going to do. And so for some kids, for black, you know, black kids, African-American kids, it may be sports that they get pushed into rather than the academic route. And so you become, you know, accustomed to that. And now all of a sudden you get to high school and you know, you can see it. Um, I'm in ninth grade and I'm in algebra. Well, guess what, bro? It's not gonna work out for you. You know, and then there's no one pushing that student to do more. Um, They've been left behind at the age of 12. And so we have to get more, counselors to be a little bit more understanding of those facts and really advocate for students so that they can get what they need as far as course selection and administrators to be out front when it comes to really creating the structures so that students can remediate and also move forward. And maybe that means they don't take a particular um, elective class. And I love electives, but to be equitable and really carry out a mission or a vision for a school or a district. If you're saying that you're gonna have college and career ready students, you gotta put the structures in place to do that. And if we're not doing that, what are we doing? You know, so. And it almost feels like we need to have um, someone who is uh, at the head of the Department of Education 
<laughs> not saying that's going to happen anytime soon uh, with with our current administration, but it, it seems like we need someone to create very clear and not just clear, but um, measurable means of defining equity and equality. And it just needs to be whole cloth across the country. This is what it is. Now let's, now let's move past that so that we can address it. Because right now we're spending 90% of our time just debating what it means, let alone how to address it. Um, so I'm going to get you out of here. Uh, well, I have one last question before I, 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 I get you out of here and I'm going to give you all a 30 second window <laughs> to answer. Cause this is like a commercial for you. So we'll start with Dr. Ortiz and it's going to okay. be the same question for you, Dr. Glass gotcha. in terms of equity. What do you want the educators who come through this doctoral program? What would you like them to either learn or know how to do by the time they finish the program? Hmm. Well, I think what I want them to do first is to be able to decipher, name, identify the inequitable practices and policies Hmm. in their institutions. Uh, The second, I want them to have the leadership skills, so that's, you know, whether it's persuasion or building systems or learning how to have difficult conversations um, and really to, to develop a disposition to be brave about it mm-hmm. because we're not going to get anywhere um, if we approach it from a technocratic perspective, like we just shift levers or we just change policy, but it also has to be that I can go up to the to the the instructor that's having a problem with her black and brown kids in the classroom and say, "This has got to stop," and this is how we're going to stop it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and that's you know that's risky. I, I did that once. I thought I spent a year thinking I was going to be sued, you know, so, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I always had in my mind that, that students are the ones who are, who are losing if I don't, if I, if I don't stick to that. Hmm. How about you, Dr. Glass? Well, it's, it's a little bit of what I believe in as far as my personal mission. Um, one thing is to listen. I want them, uh, we, we do a lot of time, take a lot of time to talk and develop our thoughts. Sometimes we have to listen to somebody else. And I think within the context of the cohort model that we have, we have lots of opportunities to learn from each other. And we all come from different places and spaces. It's important to people. What Brian always mentions is always be reading. So. We need to take what we're hearing and then apply it to something we've read, what we've experienced, and kind of create that uh, that that uh, ability to really understand. To try to, walking toward understanding. Um, the program is is not a normal program, and it's not. It shouldn't be. 
it's an opportunity to really become a better human being and then to influence other people to also be better human beings within this context, within this racial context, this, this pandemic that we're experiencing, um, it's taken a turn. And it's really important to really embrace the, the, the forward thinking that took place when this, create, when this whole program was created to be in this mindset, to, to really forward this. Um, I think it's, it was way ahead of its time. And I think that it's, we're here and we need to just continue with that. So the development needs to be there. The understanding, the, the commitment to understanding needs to be there. But foundationally, I think the listening piece needs to be there that we need to all come away with. All right. So we have come to the bittersweet part of this show. Yeah. Bitter because I've so enjoyed this discussion and I would love to continue carrying on this discussion uh, with you and so many other educators because I think this is such an incredibly important topic that we continue to talk about and really drill down and get to the core of. But the other side of it is I'm really excited because I get to know a little bit more about you and I get to grow as a person with this segment. Uh, at the end of every episode, I like to ask my guests to assign an extra credit assignment to myself and the podcast listeners. This can be anything. It could be, hey, check out this show, uh, try this type of food, read this book. When vacations are a thing again, here's a place that you might want to consider traveling first. It could be anything. So uh, I'll start with uh, you, Dr. Ortiz. What is an extra credit assignment you would like to give the pod class audience? Well, I, I my assignment would really be um, experiment with difficult conversations. So, oh, I do that every day on Facebook, so not a problem. <laughs> but have them face to face with real people. <laughs> um, maybe on Zoom right now, but um, but but try it and 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 try to get to a place of of beyond confrontation to understanding um, be, and, and then do it again and again, because it takes practice. It takes practice because um, you're gonna be emotional and it's gonna, you're gonna, um, everything in your body is gonna tense up when you first start doing it. Um, uh, but with practice and, and with experience, um, you begin to be someone who can have a difficult conversation in an empathetic yet assertive way where um, I'm not saying the other person might not always feel good, but at least you feel better. <laughs> You're not, uh, you know, destroyed emotionally by the, by the difficult sure. conversation. But the other person at the very least then feels respected. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Okay. All right. Oh, I have so many people I can have a challenging conversation with. I got to, uh, like I said, in an election cycle, it's not hard to find these people. So I will, I will no, definitely work on that. <laughs> Dr. Glass. We only have two weeks, two weeks. <laughs> not come soon enough. Dr. Glass, what is your extra credit assignment? My, my extra credit assignment is a book by Bettina Love called We Want to Do More Than Survive. Um, I literally finished this book last night and um, it's transformational as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's the concept of abolitionist teaching was something I'd never heard you know, as a term. And um, it's just 
creating an opportunity and a space for students and in communities, communities of color uh, to literally dream for the impossible, which I think is honestly something that we restrict ourselves from doing because you want to land softly. But when you are teaching in a space where you're encouraging students to just imagine the impossible and go for it, um, we have to imagine racial justice is going to happen. I mean, it's something that we can't quantify right here and now, and it's something that we haven't seen ourselves, but we have to believe in that. We have to believe that that can happen. And of course, that's a portion of the book. There's so much packed into it, but um, Bettina Love, B-E-T-T-I-N-A. She's uh, incredible. All right, I will. Uh, I will try to fit that in with one of my many readings. Always be <laughs> <You> can, reading. <laughs> always be reading, and always then don't forget Bo, Bowman and Deal. Bowman and Deal is the other thing I would recommend. Just oh, kidding. It, <laughs> 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 Bowman and Deal for the last two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! I, I know. I, I turn. Know. I see a frame at this point. Um, thank right. you both so much for coming on the show. I have so enjoyed the tea and conversation uh, beyond the T uh, about education, uh, whether it's PK-12 or higher ed, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And I am so grateful that there are people like you who are uh, pushing us forward. And I'm really glad that uh, we got to talk about this. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Great. Jason. Thank you, Jason. Okay, that is our show. I wanna thank our very special guests, Doctors Glass and Ortiz for joining us, and thank you, my pod classmates, for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, don't be a stranger. Reach out, let me know. I can be found on all social media platforms with the username at TeachMeMrWest. I can also be reached via email at podclasspod, that's podclasspod at gmail.com. I know I've mentioned this before, but this is a new and exciting show for all of us, which means we need all the help we can get letting the world know just how great this show is. If you wouldn't mind, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and give this show a five-star review. If reviews aren't your thing, why not tell everyone you know to check out the show? Look, I know times are tough right now and the economy isn't what it once was, so with the holidays coming up, why not give the gift of pod class to all your friends and family? Imagine seeing the cherubic faces of all your loved ones huddled around a fireplace, they're all together for some reason, and they've got cocoa in their hands, and they're smiling from ear to ear as they listen to the sweet, dulcet tones of your favorite podcast hosts opining about the need for educational reform. Doesn't that sound beautiful? So go ahead, spread the love this holiday season, and tell the world to check out PodClass. It's the best gift money literally does not buy. Until next time, PodClass dismissed.